You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Let's begin here with our scripture reading. It's going to be from Esther chapter 1. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. These Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished." Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing a royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger, since... It was customary for the king to consult experts. In the matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times that were closest to the king. Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marshana, and Mamuhan. The seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamuhan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she wouldn't come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. And that is a reading of God's word. All God's people said, amen. Amen. And some of you are wondering, like, what what am I saying amen to right there, Morgan? Like, you know, what's up with that? Why this? Why Esther? In the middle of everything going on right now, really this? Yeah, why? Why? Well, put it like this. If a story all about a beautiful orphan girl who grows up to be the queen of a foreign empire, if that doesn't get your attention, if a story all about a minority people group facing extinction and genocide but who are rescued at the last minute doesn't get your attention, if a story all about a religious people group struggling to reconcile their faith with a dominant culture threatening to assimilate them doesn't get your attention, 
If a story about a dominant female character who risks her life to secure social justice doesn't get your attention, and if a story all about how to find and follow the God of the Bible when everything is going against you, if that doesn't get your attention, I think I'm all out of stories for you. No, I think I believe. Not only because this, this book is really personal for me, as you'll see, but I believe that the book of Esther is infinitely relevant for And you knew this was coming for such a time as this. That's right. Because in a very real way, all those things are what this book is all about. And we're going to be looking at it during the month of November. And we'll see all those things as we go by looking at this amazing piece of Hebrew narrative. In some ways, it's actually the star of the entire Hebrew scriptures. Scriptures, And I use that word on purpose because Esther's name actually means star. In a way, she's the star of the Hebrew Scriptures because her story, her book, was the last to be included in the Old Testament canon or grouping of books. So in a way, from that perspective, Esther begs to be read and applied as God's last selfie in the Hebrew Scriptures. My point is this. If you were to ask, who is the God of the Bible? What is the God of the Bible like? You could, you should go right to Esther. Here's my question for today. Who is the God of the Bible? Who is the God of the Bible? Well, as we're going to see in this great story, first chapter, he is the God who saves. He's the God who saves. He's the God who rescues. He's the God who comes through on behalf of those who cannot rescue themselves. Oh, but how? How does he do this? How does God come through, save, and rescue? That's what Esther is all about. So how does he save? We're going to see through three main ways today here in chapter one. Number one, it's through bad kings. God saves through bad kings. Number two, through better queens. And finally, through ultimate silent sovereignty. Bad kings, better queens, ultimate silent sovereignty, all from Esther one. Let's go. Let's look at number one. Let's look at how God saves through bad kings. Let me set this story up. Super fast. Esther takes place roughly 480 B.C. While the Jewish people are scattered across the world. About 100 years before this, they had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire. The the capital city of their nation, Jerusalem, had been burned and destroyed. And many Jews had been carried off into exile by the Babylonians. While they were in exile in Babylon, another empire came through, conquered the Babylonians. They were called the Persians. And after the Persians had come to power, they inherited all those dispersed Jews. And after then, a generation passed, a few number of Jews began to return and to try to rebuild their nation. But because the journey to return was so, was so difficult, because the, the work there was so life-threatening, most of the Jews stayed behind in Persia. And a good number of them are now living in Susa, the capital city, the Persian Empire. And two Jews in particular, and we're going to meet them at length next week, were living there in Susa, a man named Mordecai and a younger woman named Hadassah, who you may know, of course, as Esther. But ruling over all of them and about to make the mistake of his life was someone named Ahasuerus, or more commonly known as King Xerxes. Who was he? Let's look at him for a moment. Because as depicted by the writer of Esther, Xerxes is a hot mess. (laughs) Because unlike Nebuchadnezzar, say, the Babylonian king, who, yeah, conquered the Jewish people, but who ultimately repented and had an encounter with the God of the Bible, 
Unlike Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire, who at least respected the Jewish faith, was open to hearing about the God of the Bible. Unlike both of those kings, Xerxes, Xerxes was not good. Let's look at who he is, what he does, and just in one chapter. Number one, he doesn't really care about the kingdom. As apparently all he likes to do is party. Six months, he can't stop, won't stop, right? A bender with his military and his cabinet. You're like, who's actually out defending the kingdom? <laughs> Man, who's running things? Well, who's got time for pesky questions like that, right? When you got Persia's finest on tap. Second, Xerxes can't think for himself. He said it was customary for him to consult all his nobles. All he does is wave his finger in the air. The snakes in his court sort of fill in the blanks in his mind. Third, Xerxes surrounds himself with terrible people. Later on, we'll see he, he hires this guy named Haman. I mean, he, he's terrible. He's the villain. We're going to meet him in week three. Who would even hire him? Even his own wife can't stand him. All Xerxes does is compete in some kind, sorry, but this is a story, some kind of weird sexual Olympics with this endless stream of virgins. He drinks himself into oblivion and he ruins the one good thing he's got going for him, which is his beautiful wife, Vashti. When he calls her in to show off her assets and take off her clothes for all of his drunk locker room buddies. Top it all off, and most central to the plot here, he's tricked into signing a law that's going to allow the evil Haman to wipe out the Jewish people. And yet, in the end, it's actually, surprise, dumb, old, carnal, lusty, drunk Xerxes who's also maneuvered into signing a second law that overturns the previous one, and he saves the people. What's going on? Well, what's going on is this. That God was at work to save his people, not just in spite of, but actually through the sins of Xerxes. How does God save? I'll put it like this. If the sin of Xerxes is all God's God, God can use that too. If the sin of Xerxes is all God's God, God can use that too. And I want to tell you a story to illustrate this. It's a true story from my own life. It's a tough story. You could actually go back and find this in the news. And I don't tell you this story to, to dishonor anybody, but just to relay the facts and to illustrate a truth. Years ago in another lifetime, I actually worked for a kind of a Xerxes. This was an, he was an amazing evangelist. This guy could walk into pro locker rooms, pro athlete locker rooms, NFL, NBA, lead otherwise untouchable pro athletes to Christ. Because of his abilities, he formed this ministry that extended into college campuses and touched a lot of lives, including my own. Uh, when the spirit of the Lord came on him, we saw legit miracles. I want to tell you, they was true, all true. Remember time after time watching an NFL player uh, get hurt. They said he was out for the season this pastor would fly out next week we'd hear on the from the announcers this guy got hurt we'd expected him to be out for the season but he's out playing again what happened johnny what happened was the spirit of the lord came on this man prayed for someone was healed this guy was deeply flawed his treatment of others cruelty towards me and others was like legendary he came to classic story unfortunately came to accumulate a lot of money misused it unfaithful to his wife in the end his ministry left bankrupt a lot of the people that you touched in the first place. You say, Morgan, that sounds terrible. It was. And that's not all his story. And I know God's still at work in his life, but that's, that all happened. But do you know what happened really? What, here's what happened. What happened was, through all of that, God saved me. God saved me. Because one of my deepest character flaws, you're like, here it is, holding a breath. Let's see if he's right or not. <clears throat> You've got him too, thank you. 
deriving a sense of self from my own performance. I could never have begun to see or be delivered from if it weren't for him. If I had never been forced through his treatment, through all those circumstances, to see and know that as a person, that I, just like you, I'm separate, you're separate from your performance. If I were never forced to do the hard work of diving down into all the scum at the bottom of the pond and see and find a firm foothold based on God's promises and God's word, who I was in Christ, I never would have lasted life, family, ministry. What happened? The sin of a kind of a Xerxes set me free. God cared, here's why, God cared more about who I was becoming. And by the way, he cares a lot more about who you're becoming even than you do. God cares about the kind of person that you are. He cares so deeply about the condition of your soul right now. He'll even risk his reputation on flawed people to get a message across to you. After all, think about it. You also may be functioning as someone else's Xerxes right now. Here's my point. In the end, because you and I, we can't be told we're flawed. We have to be shown we're flawed. Right? Can't be told. You have to be shown. No one ever hears, right, wives? (laughs) I've got you, husband. You've got a problem. No one ever says, you're right. I'll change now. No, it didn't happen. You can't be told. You've got to be shown. So what if God loved you enough right now to allow a kind of a Xerxes in your life? Right? A boss, spouse, Employee, coworker, community group person, right? To somehow deliver you from something that you else you couldn't see otherwise. That would take your life in the end. See, that's that's what God's doing right here with Xerxes, right? God is using a lusty, drunk king to free his people, though God never ever approves of his behavior. But that's just how God saves. You say, Morgan, doesn't it matter how he how he behaves? Doesn't it matter how people who are in charge behave? Absolutely. A leader's choice and choices affect a lot of people, but the life of Xerxes just proves that God is bigger than and always gets the last laugh on human sin. Whether it's through a Nebuchadnezzar who repents, it's through a Xerxes who won't, or through a Cyrus who's somewhere in between, God always gets the last laugh. He just saves through bad kings. Oh, that's number one, but that's not all. That's not how God only saves, not just through bad kings. Yes, also. Let's look at her now. Through number two, he saves also through better queens. Of course, we're talking about Vashti, who just sort of makes this brief guest appearance in the book for one fleeting chapter. She's Xerxes' queen, and her name actually means beautiful. And by the way, when the Bible tells you that someone was lovely to look at, you can believe that it's true. And Xerxes knows it's true. All his drunk buddies know it's true. And so on about mm, his 60th beer, he calls for her to display her beauty in front of everyone. But she won't do it. She won't do it. Now, actually, it's fairly amazing, right? In a traditional patriarchal society, for her to refuse this, it's actually remarkable. While there's some commentaries out there who sort of, you know, condemn her apparent lack of respect, I think a far more likely reading, and actually a lot of more folks agree with me or I agree with them or whatever, that what she's doing is very brave here. As a matter of fact, right here, come on, you're supposed to see this, she's actually a far better woman and a far braver person than Esther is at the beginning of Esther's journey. So what's Vashti doing? I want to pause here and drop an anchor in the water and just pull out a principle for a moment. Here's what she's doing. Vashti is offering principled resistance to dehumanizing power. 
She's offering principled resistance to dehumanizing power. In specific, she's refusing to cooperate with a power that strips her of her dignity. She's making a, like a kind of a public protest. She's saying, sorry, Xerxes, sorry, boys. I wasn't made for that. 1955, Montgomery, Alabama, a woman of Christian faith named, probably know this, but let's say her name, Rosa Louise McCauley Parks. So on her way home from work, when she boarded a bus, she paid her fare. She sat in what was known at the time, of course, as the colored section. But when the rest of the bus filled up, the bus driver demanded that she and three other black riders move back and let the white people take their seats. Other three said yes, she said no, and the rest is history. She was arrested by the police for violating the Montgomery bus code, though technically she had actually done nothing wrong. And she became so respected over her lifetime for all of her work that one time later in her life, before she passed away, uh, she was assaulted, unfortunately, in her own apartment building. But when they caught the man who beat her up and they arrested him and they put him in prison, they actually had to move that guy to another higher security prison for his own protection. And... When she died, she became the first woman to be buried in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. Yeah. And you probably know all that, but what you might not know is what she said about that fateful day, about that moment when she offered her principled resistance to dehumanizing power. She said this, quote, like Vashti, I had not planned to get arrested. I had plenty to do without having to end up in jail. But when I had to face that decision, I didn't hesitate to do so because I felt that we had endured that too long. The more we gave in, the more we complied with that kind of treatment, the more oppressive it became. Now, because of that, God used that moment in history, hadn't he? Aren't we glad for that? God's used that moment in history. Why? Because many times what God uses, what he leverages, not just to save us, come on, but to save others, is your, mine, our principled resistance to powers of darkness like racism, like hate, like greed, in Vashti's case right here, like lust. Morgan, are you saying be like Vashti? Well, yes and no, because on one hand, she wasn't exactly standing up for a persecuted people like Rosa Parks. She was most likely only standing up for herself. She probably wasn't really better than her contemporaries, and she certainly doesn't follow the one true God. But still, at this moment, Vashti, come on, was a better queen and Xerxes was a king. And her principled resistance is what opens the stage of history for a new queen to come to power, which, after all of this, is the point of this entire drunken episode. Because, and you have to see this here, it wasn't just through a bad king or a better queen that salvation is going to come for the people of God in the book. You say, Morgan, I know that. It's through another character. I know where this is headed. It's through someone else who appears in the book. And right there, if you're saying that, thinking that, you're right and you're wrong. Correct and incorrect. Because salvation is going to come through someone else, but it's actually through someone who doesn't appear in the book at all. You say, how could that be? Because of this. The name of the chief protagonist character in the book has been left out, not by me, of course, but by the writer of Esther. You may have picked up on it already. It's this. There is no mention of the name of God at all in the book. No mention of him at all. You say like there's like at least one. Nope, 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 not there. There's no prayer. There's no sacrificing. There's like a, like a quick reference to some fasting, but that's it. There's no dream. There's no vision. There's no miracle. This isn't an oversight. 
It's not like the writer of the book of the Esther got done and his buddy came up to him and like, hey, 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 you forgot about the God part. Like put God back in the book. He's like too late. You know, I already went to press. Sorry, you know, catch him next time. No, no, no. The writer does this on purpose. It is a Hebrew narrative, literary device. Why? To show how this God saves, the God of the Bible saves, how he does some of his very best work in your life and my life. Not just through bad kings, better queens. Number three, though, here's his. It's through ultimate and silent sovereignty. Ultimate, silent sovereignty. You say, how does that work? Like this. Even though the Jews are in incredible danger right here, they're about to be wiped out. Even though it seems like God is nowhere around, he is still at work orchestrating the salvation of an entire people group. Because by the end of the book, when you read it, there's this whole stream of seemingly disconnected coincidences that upon further inspection reveal the silent sovereignty of God. And it starts like this. God begins to work when the king begins to drink. Because if the king doesn't get drunk, he doesn't call for Vashti to come. And if Vashti doesn't reject him, the new space for a new queen doesn't come about. And the new queen, of course, just happened to be Esther. We'll meet her next week. She just happens to be both beautiful and a Jew. Her cousin was a guy named Mordecai who now, because his husband becomes queen, he hangs out at the city gates to keep tabs on her. And if he had not come to the city gates one specific day, at one specific hour, he never would have overheard the plot to assassinate the king, which means Mordecai's name would never have been written down in the king's records. Oh, but the king just happened to forget to honor him until much later when one night, and when the king can't sleep, he picks up something to read. And it says, and you're supposed to catch this, he just happens to turn to one chapter in a book all about how amazing he had been, by the way. But the chapter just happens to be about Mordecai. And it suddenly strikes him. I have never honored Mordecai. What sets into motion another string of events that results with Esther doing something incredible, which we'll get to. Just happened? I don't think so. No, God Almighty is the true protagonist in the story, the main character, and he's been at work the whole time. But that's hard to see in your life, isn't it? Come on. It's hard to see in your life, isn't it? You say, yes, it is. Why? Because when you see, for example, I don't know, a whole ocean separate, come on, Red Sea, you think, there's God. When you see fire on top of Mount Carmel, you think, there's God. But you never think, golly, man, my roommate got drunk. Surely God is delivering me. <laughs> you don't think that. The booker of Esther is telling us, don't make that mistake. God's silence is not his absence. After all, how would you know that he's not at work? I'll give you an example. I became a Christian on February 26, 1995. It was a Sunday, as you'll recall. How did I come to be standing there in a group of about 12 students? Well, I was at U of H, go Cougs, because I was a National Merit Scholar, which means, as you may know, scored a certain level on a PSAT. U of H just happened to be one of the only schools in the country who gives free scholarships to National Merit Scholars. So it was free for me to go to. At the same time, I was recruited to play baseball there. So I was both a jock 
and a nerd at the same time. Thank you very much. So I show up to play baseball for U of H. But although I had been recruited by one coach between the time I signed and I showed up on campus, they just happened to fire the old coach. And they just happened to hire a new coach, sounding familiar, uh, who did not know me, who just happened to put me in a different position. Uh, Though I was recruited to play one place, he put me in the outfield, literally to be the backup left fielder. The starting left fielder was a guy named Chris, who just happened to be the only Christian on the team. And day after day, he would witness to me. He'd share his faith with me. He would invite me to this group uh, that he was a part of. Of called Every Nation Campus. And I showed up, finally said, yeah, showed up one night and God changed my life. And one of the other 12 students in the room that night just happened to be this really pretty girl from Southern California named Carrie, who's now my wife. No, 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 yeah, yeah. Now I find out later I had actually scored the lowest possible score on that test to get that status, which means if I had bubbled like C, Instead of B or A, instead of D or like E, none of the above, on one test. I took one day of my junior year of high school and I wasn't even caring about serving God. I wouldn't have got the scholarship, wouldn't have gone to Houston to play for the coach who just happened to change my position. Wouldn't have been influenced by Chris and wouldn't have gone to the meeting where I met Jesus and my wife the same night. I tell you, yeah, yeah. God, my friends, God's silence isn't his absence. He's sovereign. Even when he appears to be silent. He's the true protagonist working in your life right now, working in this church right now. He's working in this nation right now, just like he was working in that nation then, no matter how it looks. And the reason I want to tell you, after all this, you can know this is true, is not just because of Esther's story, but because of the one to whom this whole book points and the one who actually redeems the entire book of Esther. Because years after Esther, there was another young person who would grow up far from home, in another kingdom ruled by a terrible king. And this young man went around doing good, healing all those oppressed by the devil. He went around recovering the dignity from those from whom it had been stripped. Jesus of Nazareth fed the hungry, forgave the sinner, healed the leper, cleansed the outcast. He wept at death. He raised the hypocrisy. He offered principled resistance not only to the king of his day, but to every demonic power of darkness that came to consume the people that he made and loved. And for this, all of this, he was tried falsely. He was banished from the sight of another ruler, another court. And Jesus Christ was crucified and died. And on the cross, as he himself was stripped of all his dignity, clothing, he hung out, he hung there crying, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what did he get in that moment? Silence. Heaven was silent. But was God absent? Come on, far from it. God was working through the worst moment in human history to bring about the best moment in history. God was working to bring about a resurrection so that you and I could have a future hope, a hope for now, and that you and I will not only be able to come to know him, but to be changed from the inside out. And so that we could know, even at your, my worst moment of isolation and darkness and pain and betrayal in 2020, God's silence is in his absence. He is for you. He is with you. He loves you. He's got a dream for your life like he had for Esther. Oh, and it's greater and it's better and it's richer and deeper than whatever plans you've got and made for yourself. He's working out his dream for you, for me, for his church. God has a plan for such a time as this. Sometimes, maybe even especially, that truth means we trust when we can't see. 
That truth means we trust when we can't see. It means we walk by faith, not by sight. Let me tell you, last thought. No matter what happens this week, here's what it means. <laughs> no matter what happens this week, this week, Esther tells us, and the cross of Christ proves we serve a God who saves and is bigger than all of it. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.